nurses were literally at home wanting to work. We needed them at the bedside to help us care for our patients, and they were not allowed to come in. Marlena Pellegrino is a nurse in the northern U.S. state of Massachusetts. This is a very dire situation. For the past eight months, she's been on strike against hospital administration. It's a very dark side of corporate America that we're seeing up close and personal. And she says the showdown she's living through of employees versus big business is one that will touch every person in the United States. It should be a wake-up call for all labor, for all workers across this country, just to know that your nurses here in Worcester, we are being retaliated against because we stood up for what was right for our patients. Marlena and the around 700 nurses standing with her are part of just one union among several that are on strike right now. Thousands of workers across the U.S. are demanding change, and they're hoping that a worker-friendly Congress, and arguably the most pro-union president in decades, will help them get it. The middle class built the country, and unions built the middle class. So will the strikers succeed? And will they change how people work in the United States and beyond? Because any quakes that shake the U.S. economy will inevitably echo around the world. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Marlena has worked at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts for 35 years. I've been there my entire career. And she's one of the co-chairs for the nurses' bargaining unit there. We went out on strike on March 8th. For the last two years, we were so short-staffed that nurses just couldn't provide what patients needed on a daily basis. Nurses would leave their shifts in tears and thinking back, what patient did I not get to see? What patient did I not get to properly assess? And what harm could have been caused with something that I may have not picked up? This company that we are working for, Tenant Healthcare Corporation, a large multi-billion dollar for-profit company, was not putting the resources where they needed to be. In order to save money, they furloughed nurses while patients were waiting for care. And it just became untenable. We did everything we could to work with this administration for over two years before we were forced to go out on strike. It's very grueling emotionally and physically. We pick it from 6 a.m. to 12 midnight every single day. The hospital, um, they've spent $110 million to fly in replacement nurses from across the country who are ill-prepared to take care of our patients. While we had a COVID spike over the last month, they've closed 111 beds. And it's very sad that this hospital could change this at any time. They have over 600 nurses walking the picket line while nurses are needed in the hospital. So they are actually harming the community in that way. Marlena says the negotiations are held up because the hospital was refusing to guarantee that the striking nurses can all return to their old jobs, in their old departments, and at their former levels of management. No strike is ever settled with a return-to-work agreement that does not return the nurses to their previous positions. So Marlena says this one won't either. For its part, 
St. Vincent Hospital, which is also speaking on behalf of its parent company, Tenet Healthcare Corps, blames the nurses for walking away from the negotiation. It says the latest proposal included wage increases, better benefits, and improved security, and that the nurses were wrong to turn away. Regardless, as long as the strike continues, there are high personal costs for the nurses. Most of them were frontline workers throughout the pandemic. Now, they haven't been paid for months. They've lost their health insurance. The strike is all-consuming, and it really can be destabilizing to your entire life. You know, it's a David versus Goliath scene here right now, but we are holding strong because if this company is allowed to do this to the St. Vincent Hospital nurses, the 700 of us, this will happen across the country. We never expected that this attention would be brought to our strike, but our strike is being watched nationwide, and actually, it seems it's being watched all over the world. One of the people watching this strike, and all of the others happening in the U.S., is Nafisa Ula. I'm the organizing director at National Jobs with Justice. And we sat down with her to ask one main burning question. We're seeing this moment right now where thousands of American workers in a range of industries are all striking at once. Why now? That's an excellent question, Malika. Why now? It might be too simplistic of an answer, but it's the pandemic. It's COVID-19. We've said time and time again that pandemic laid bare all of the systemic problems within our economy. And it's now time to actualize the power behind those things. Workers have been experiencing abuse and poverty wages since long before the pandemic came to bear. But what happened during the pandemic was that workers witnessed a tremendous growth in wages for the top 1% for their CEOs. For example, the John Deere strikers... In the wee hours of Thursday morning, workers at John Deere hit the picket lines in Iowa, Illinois, and Kansas on strike for the first time in 35 years at Deere. John Deere is a very large corporation that manufactures agricultural equipment. There are 13,000 workers on strike. During the pandemic, they were forced to work overtime to produce essential equipment so that agriculture could function the way it does. Their CEO saw 160% wage increase during the course of the pandemic, and workers were forced to work overtime. John Deere's pay gap is worse than most, but the trend still holds for many U.S. companies. CEOs at the largest publicly traded companies, on average, got a 19% pay raise during the pandemic, while typical employees saw only a 4% increase. And they're the ones braving long hours and safety dangers at work. Across the country, workers are withholding their labor and saying, it's not worth it. I'd rather not get paid than be put in harm's way. It's too dangerous. You've demonstrated what we're worth to you, and it's not enough. Can you give me a list of who is striking and why? Absolutely. So near and dear to my heart is the Nabisco strike that has already been settled. Nabisco's Portland Bakers walked off the job in early August. Plants across the country soon followed suit. That was a strike of 
approximately 3,000 workers across the country. The issues there were primarily forced overtime and a shift to kind of outrageous hours. Then, of course, we see the Kellogg strike. Production of Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, and Corn Flakes hangs in the balance tonight after workers at all of the Kellogg Company's U.S. cereal plants walked off the job this week. That is now upwards of 1,500 workers and all of these workers were deemed essential during the pandemic so that we could keep eating, keep staying home, and keep being safe. Kaiser Permanente is a, a very large healthcare corporation, and the strike vote was taken across the West Coast, comprising of 24,000 nurses and healthcare providers. The nation rallied around medical professionals as they dealt with overwhelmed hospitals filled with COVID patients. Unfortunately, that fight continues, and now nurses in California are taking on yet another battle. These are people who came to work every day over the last 20 months and watched their coworkers get sick, lived in fear of bringing the virus home to their own families, and then these employers are coming back saying, you're worthless, and that's simply unacceptable. And then this one is really interesting. IATSE is the International Alliance of Theater and Stagehand Employees. IATSE voted to strike. We're talking about 60,000 members of IATSE saying that they're being paid less for streaming services operating on an old contract. And they represent workers that do all of the behind the scenes work that make our Netflix shows and our Hulu shows, our Amazon Prime favorites. And this is so tragic because a week after they voted to strike, Workers walked off the job on set in New Mexico, and then someone died. Moments ago, we learned actor Alec Baldwin fired the prop gun that killed one person and injured another. Crew members on the set were complaining about poor safety conditions and long hours. Any loss of life, of course, is tragic, but we see all of these articles about how no one should lose their life for a film, but also no one should lose their life to manufacture cereal or a John Deere tractor. And we've watched for 20 months that people have been dying because we haven't protected these workers. This is why folks are striking. So each of these strikes and these union demands are unique in their own ways, but there are things that seem to be umbrella issues for workers. So what are some concrete changes that you can see that strikers seem to be demanding? So one of the things that ties together every single strike is about health and safety. It's really appalling that in 2021, workers still have to strike for health and safety. I mean, that's one of the core issues. And then this other one that is just stunning to me is the two-tiered system. They're fighting this two-tiered wage system that employers are trying to put in place, which what that means is that Malika, if you and I are standing side by side for the last 20 months in this pandemic, doing essential work, they're saying that you should get paid differently than me because of our start date. Mm. And not just like a seniority type of paid differently, but our entire rates, our entire scale are different. And what workers are striking about is the fact that their colleagues shouldn't be treated differently. They're striking in solidarity, and the power of that is just tremendously beautiful. I think that this moment is gonna be another one where it completely transforms what it means to be a working person in America. What is the business perspective for a two-tiered system? The business perspective is always what makes it more affordable. 
and quote unquote efficient. So employers look at the two-tiered system as an opportunity to divide the workforce and to pay less to some sets of workers. And when I say divide the workforce, I mean, then if you're in the top tier, you may be more complicit with a contract that says, well, your healthcare stays the same. You came in at a certain right time when there was a labor shortage or something. So your healthcare stays the same, your wages stay the same, but I'll cut the hours for everyone else. And you might be more complicit in letting that be okay. One of the main arguments used by big businesses and also used by anti-union voices is that raising wages and giving more benefits to workers will raise the cost of production and it'll make things more expensive for consumers. Nafisa said she doesn't think that's true, but that we should check with an economist. So that's what we did. My name is Tom Kochan. And I'm a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management in the Institute for Work and Employment Research. Professor Kohan agreed that higher wages don't have to mean higher prices for basic products. It only goes back to the consumer if the employer is passive, if the employer doesn't do anything but pass on those increases. But the most progressive employers use uh, the pressure of increased wages to look for ways to become more efficient. This is historically the path for productivity growth, for maybe more technological change, maybe use of technology in more effective ways, maybe improve the quality of the product. All of those are ways in which employers can adjust to the increased worker efforts without necessarily hurting consumers. But that means they have to be proactive in doing so. He points to the past as a way to understand the present and possibly the future. Theoretically, that same concept can be applied to workers' rights in general. When I asked Nafisa about the history of organized labor in the U.S., well... (sighs) Okay. It's been a rough go, Malika, for workers in the U.S. I think the size said so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a rough, rough go. There's a lot to cover here. So I'm going to hand the mic over to Nafisa and Professor Kohan to walk us through it all. The right to form a union has never been a given in the United States. And when I say to form a union, all I mean is for workers to have a seat at the table with their employer to help set working conditions, wages, benefits, whatever. So anyway, 1900s, people fought and died to be able to form unions, to be able to stand together with their working brothers and sisters and siblings. And after the Great Depression... There was tremendous unrest in the workforce. And so there were a lot of strikes, and that led Congress to finally pass a law that says workers have a right to engage in collective bargaining, to join a union, and employers need to recognize unions when a majority of the workforce indicate that they want to be represented. The National Labor Relations Act is now the law of the land. This is fantastic. This is earth-shattering. However... True to most things in the United States, we left a lot of people out. And the people we left out, classically, were black people. The NLRA excluded specific industries that at the time were overly represented by black workers. So agriculture and domestic work, meaning that if you're a domestic worker or if you're a farm worker, you do not have a federal right to form a union, even today in 2021. But that is tremendous, huge gains, 1935. We shall see the dawn of a new era of peace and justice for all in our economic life. That law is still on the books. 
It worked very well for about 40 years. And then in 1980, there was a real turning point. The combination of a deep recession, growth of imports, and a much more aggressive approach on the part of employers, supported really by the Reagan administration. And the Petco strike is often viewed as a, a turning point because it was so visible. Passengers who've been playing a kind of traveling Russian roulette have been unavoidably swept up in the strike rhetoric. PATCO is the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Association. In 1981, what the air traffic controllers were bargaining for was to lower the retirement age or try to change the scheduling so workers would burn out less frequently. Many passengers who might otherwise support the air traffic controllers' demands say the Reagan administration simply cannot afford to set a precedent for federal strikes. And President Reagan said after about seven or eight days, I must tell those who failed to report for duty th this morning, they are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. Now, firing air traffic controllers is a pretty risky proposition because they're so important to the safety of air traffic. But they didn't come back and Reagan followed through. He fired 11,000 workers in a day. Boom. And this signaled to the rest of the US, all of corporate America, that you can fire folks that are on strike. And we see a huge increase in uh, union busting. Up until then, companies were maybe opposed to unions, but they wouldn't say so publicly. Now they became very public that we are going to be a union-free company. We're not going to accept them at all. And we're going to do whatever we have to to keep unions from gaining any position of strength. So those tactics that started being codified really in the 70s and 80s are still being used today to break the strikes. And so we need to update that law. The National Labor Relations Act no longer really protects workers who want to organize. And so we've got to figure out why do workers really need a stronger voice? They express the need for it. What is it that they want to influence and how can we give them a real opportunity to have a, a stronger voice at work? That last question brings us to the present. And it's what the strikers and their allies are fighting for every day. There's also a legal fight in Congress. Professor Cohen knows it well. I've been part of three different efforts over the last 30 years to try to change law, and none of them have been able to get through the Congress. Business and labor have always been at loggerheads, and that locks it. The PRO Act is the most recent version of that effort. I'm calling on Congress to pass... Protect the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, and send it to my desk so we can support the right to unionize. The PRO Act strengthens the penalties for violating labor law. Right now, the penalties are so weak that there is almost an incentive for employers to uh, ignore the law and avoid organization. So the PRO Act uh, increases the penalties. It also provides for arbitration of first contracts so that there's a higher probability that people who organize a union will actually get a contract. All of these are demonstrated through research over the years to be problems with the National Labor Relations Act. The PRO Act passed in the House of Representatives with bipartisan support in March, but has been stuck in Senate ever since. Remember, Marlena and the other nurses in Worcester, Massachusetts, had been on strike for that same period. We've been through heat waves, floods, snow, 
ice, and we're coming back up on that. It's a long time. And for many of the rest of us in the U.S., that same chunk of time has meant vaccinations and city reopenings and traveling again. I asked Nafisa why those of us who aren't striking should still care about this issue. How will these strikes strike Tober? And now, I guess, we're going into November. Uh, whatever the catchphrase for strikes that. Giving. Strikes, strikes giving. Strikes is what giving. Are thinking about. Love it. How will these strikes affect people who aren't striking and why they should pay attention? This is such a hard question for me because it's my life's work. To me, it's so commonsensical that an injury to one is an injury to all and that we should all care. But not everyone is you and not everyone is me. So why we should care is because this is the opportunity of a generation or more. This is our FDR moment to transform what the systems look like. If the supply chain takes longer, if agriculture slows down because of the John Deere strike, none of those things are my fault or workers' fault. It's a systemic failure. And so it's our opportunity to look at that instead of placing the blame on working people just like us, look at the systemic failure and figure out how to make it better. It would be such a tragedy if in a generation, the next me is sitting around talking about the same health and safety concerns, is still talking about these same fissures in our economic system. It's our moral responsibility to fix these. It's our moral responsibility to expose them, look at them, and then figure out what the path forward is. And that's what the strikers are giving us the opportunity to do, is to look at what's broken and fix it. And that's just super exciting to me, and I I hope to others. And that's The Take. Special thanks to Johnny Callis for getting us in touch with the Nurses' Union in Worcester. He leads Cornell's Labor Action Tracker, which is a good resource if you want to learn more about this subject. Also, thanks to Ruth Milkman and Dominique Muldoon for helping us better understand the story. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve, with Ney Alvarez, Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Aya El-Milek is our team's engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Finton is story editor. And Stacey Samuel is executive producer. We'll be back.